Um, if you'd like to grab from uh, the back again uh, the handout, Th- this will be a handout to walk through, um, use kind of as a table of contents as we walk through our uh, lesson this morning. I think that um, there was a, a conversation I was having with Rod um, uh, about a week ago, yeah, right, right at a week ago, where um, he was asking if I would come in and start a new series in Sunday school. And what we're looking at, uh, this series is going to uh, be picking up um, in the middle of Romans. We were uh, blessed over the last, I don't know, maybe a year, I'm not sure how long it was, that, um, that Dan was preaching and walking through Romans. And we got through chapter 6. And so, what I'm going to be doing is so that it doesn't just stop, I'm actually going to be picking up in chapter 12 of Romans. And when you get to chapter 12, this is where you have the therefore in, a Roman, in Romans. So Paul has been walking through and giving some great deep theology Now, what do we do with this great theology? And this is what we find from 12 through chapter 15 of Romans. It is the application of what he has shared for the first first half of of the book. Now, what we're going to actually be skipping, if you look, well, wait a minute, what about chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, 11? Because there's some really good stuff in those chapters. And um, what we're going to do, though, is wait for one of our pastors to have the opportunity to walk us through that. So there will be a point in the future um, where, and uh, that's not scheduled or on the docket, but there will be a point where one of our pastors walks us through um, from 7 up through chapter 11. And so don't worry, we will be able to get to all the great stuff um, in, those, in, in, in that window that, w- that we're missing. But what we're going to be starting with is a series that's probably going to be um, uh, probably about seven weeks to walk us from chapter 12 through the end of Romans. Now, uh, Kenneth Birding, uh, he's, a, he's a gentleman who uh, teaches at Biola, but he actually said, talking of Romans 12.1, and if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles there, where Romans 12.1, he says, starts with the most important therefore in the Bible. And if, you're, if you've been around this church or other churches that are teaching the Bible, you've probably heard some type of phrase similar to, you know, wherefore art that therefore, therefore, or why is that therefore, therefore? That, you know, that's a phrase that, that we know and are familiar with. But whenever we see in Scripture, therefore, we want to ask a question, what is that therefore, therefore? And so that's what we're going to try to start with um, by taking a look at that therefore in Romans 12.1. And before we um, get started actually in our lesson, what I want to do is give a little recap of what Paul has talked about, just a highlight of some of what he's talked about in verses 1 through 11. Because once he gets to this chapter 12 and says, therefore, we need to know what he has been referencing. And so we find out um, at, at the very beginning in chapter 1 where we are told that the, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. We're talking about the gospel and that everyone, a piece of this gospel, this good news, is the fact that everyone is bound under sin. We really see this in chapters 1 through 3. And so in Romans 1, uh, verse 28, uh, we find what, are the, what is the mind of those who is bound under, under sin. It says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God... God gave them over to an unfit mind. And we, of course, know Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that justification comes only through the propitiation of Christ, also in chapter 3. But then when you get into chapters 4 through 5, 
We know that justification is by faith. It's not by works. And this is for all people, even Abraham. Abraham was saved by faith. And everyone inherits sin through Adam, but in Christ, they are made alive. We have, in chapter 6, a union with Christ, meaning that we died and we rose with Christ. We know that we are no longer slaves to sin. And clearly by that, prior to salvation, we were slaves to sin. We know that we may now present ourselves as slaves to righteousness. And we see that in Romans 6, verses 12 through 13, where we're told, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We know from chapter 7 that we have this conflicting of two natures, our sinful flesh and our renewed self. In chapter 8, we find out that the sanctification our growth and our being made more like Christ is through the Holy Spirit. And we also find out in that same chapter that nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate the children of God from the love of God in Christ. Then in chapter 9, we find that God has a sovereign plan of salvation that, yes, incorporates both Israel and the Gentiles. And God is sovereign and he's supreme over all that he does, including salvation. And we find in chapter 10 that the gospel, it is what brings the message of salvation to those who hear it. The gospel comes through the preaching of the word. And ultimately in chapter 11, God has a future plan for Israel. And because of this, because of all of this, because of everything that we've highlighted over, just flown over, if you look back one page in your Bible to Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33, because of all of this, you can say nothing but, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And based on all of this, therefore, Romans 12, 1, read with me, therefore I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. Paul has laid out deep and wonderful truths of the gospel, truths of salvation, of God, of man, of sin, and the application of all of these truths, the application in the life of a believer is Romans 1, or Romans 12, 1 and 2. He then spends the next four chapters, so 12 through 15, explaining how to live this application out in your life. So let this sink in. The application of all that Paul teaches in Romans 1 through 11 and all that he teaches about God and man and salvation and sin and justification and sanctification, 
the application is Romans 12, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And I think if it's not already one of your favorite passages in the Bible, it will probably be by the end of this week. The ultimate application of the doctrines of salvation is to worship God. And Romans 12, 1 and 2, it actually shows us that true worship is to present your whole body sacrifice to God. And you do this by resisting the world and renewing the mind. So let's pray and take a look at these two verses. Our God, our Savior, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts and our minds to understand even a little bit more fuller today how we can apply the truths of the gospel in our life. We pray that you would speak through your word and change our hearts. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. So let's look, first of all, at point number one in our handout. You can look at that. It says that true worship is to present your whole body sacrifice to God. So verse 1, let's take a look here. It says, Therefore I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So let's see, wherefore art that most important, therefore, therefore. He says, I exhort you. I exhort you. And exhort, it actually is a very good translation. Our meaning in English is very, very similar to, um, to the Greek word that is here. It's, it's greater than a request. It's more than just, would you do this? But it's also a little bit less than a command where you're saying, go do this. So it, it's kind of in between there. And some, some of the different people who have um, looked at the nuances of this word have, have likened it to even beseech, which some translations have, or I beg of you, not so much as in a pleading for mercy type of a begging, but a pleading because of a great conviction. And um, there, there's one commentator who said that this exhortation, it comes with authority, but not the authority of a preacher who is the authority in your life, issuing a command, but with the authority of a preacher who is the mediator of God's truth. And we, we actually see this mirrored in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you wanted to flip over to there. The same word is used where God is the one who is pleading with us or exhorting us. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says, So then we are ambassadors for Christ, as God is pleading through us. That's that same word, exhorting. As God is pleading through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The action that God is doing in 2 Corinthians 5.20, that is that exhortation. The greater than a request, but at the same time, not a command. And the attitude with which Paul is exhorting in this passage, it, we can understand it even better when you look at how he addresses the Romans who he's actually exhorting. What, what is it that he calls the um, readers here in verse 1? How does he reference them? Brothers, my brethren. This is love. This is, this is family. It's not a harsh command, but it's a loving beseeching. My brothers, my brethren, my family who I love I exhort you. And notice as well, th this even kind of unpeels it a little bit more. He says, I exhort you, brothers, 
by the mercies of God. Now this is one, I'm exhorting you by the mercies of God. What, what exactly would this be referring to? Well, there's a, a couple different people had actually pointed to this, and then you know, I started opening up the fact that the mercies of God, those are the justification, the sanctification, the glorification of the believer that he has just finished speaking with. And if you flip back, actually, one page to um, Romans chapter 11, verse 30, and this is right before where we were reading before, notice in, in uh, Romans eleven thirty, 30, says, for just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of your disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. The mercy of God is the salvation by God. The mercy of God is what is the, the gifts of God's grace that Paul has just finished expounding on over the last 11 chapters, the previous 11 chapters. And the exhortation is based upon this salvation. The exhortation is based off of what he has just been talking about. And so Paul's authoritative exhortation, being rooted in brotherly love, being based on the doctrine of salvation, and being carried with the authority of bearing of one bearing the office of Christ's apostleship, this exhortation is what he is laying out to the, believe, to the believers in Rome. And you could actually rephrase what he has just said by saying, if you have experienced the salvation described up to this point in the letter, if you have been saved, then on the basis of these mercies shown to you in your salvation... On the basis of the mercies of the salvation, I exhort you. My exhortation is rooted in the fact that you, one who was a slave to sin, have now been made alive together with Christ. So looking at the passage, what is it that Paul is exhorting the believers to? What is it that he is exhorting them to do? Yeah, yeah, Drew, say that again. Yeah, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Yeah, to present your bodies as a sacrifice. The exhortation is for you to present yourself as a sacrifice to God. So, Follow Paul's flow that he has here. In light of all that I've shared with you, I plead with you, my family, my brothers, my sisters, whom I love, based on the mercies that God has shown you, I beg you to present your bodies to God as a sacrifice. The application of the gospel message is to present yourself, your whole body, as a sacrifice to God. Now, when you look at the way he has written this, he says, therefore, I exhort you, brothers. The exhort, it's, it's actually a very strong verb. Okay? The emphasis, it, if you were to um, pull out and look at the grammar, the, the, the strongest verb in this verse is going to be the exhortation. And it says, I exhort you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a, as a sacrifice. The to present, it's actually a weaker verb. Now, how many of you all would kind of agree with me that you would think Paul probably should have put more of an emphasis on the command he should have given a compar I mean, an imperative and said, I exhort you, and then give a command. 
Go present yourself. But that's not what he does. And, and this is why I think it's actually pretty neat. You would expect the, the command to actually be this imperative that is telling you, go do something. But I want you to think of this illustration, okay? How many of us are parents in this room? Okay. I'm going to use my son. Asher, go clean your room. There's an imperative. Compared to Asher, please, I beg you to clean your room. Right? Which is actually the stronger command that's going to make him move a little bit faster? It's that second one, right? Because the emphasis, the strength is on, I beg of you to clean. He knows it's serious. And you can look at other places in Scripture, and this is one of the neat things. The same word, exhort, it is actually used in connection with other imperatives. So if you were to use these same words, there's other places where you could find, I exhort you, clean your room. You can find that other places. So it's not a matter of it just being, oh, it doesn't work to do it this way. It clearly was an intentional setup, an intentional um, decision by Paul to emphasize how important it is for you to do the action that I'm asking. So when you read, I exhort you to clean your room, this is what we're saying. And really, when we look at this setup, we can hear Paul saying, I exhort you by the mercies of God. Brothers, present your bodies to God as a sacrifice. I really, really, really want you to present your bodies to God as a sacrifice. So the question to ask then is, what is a sacrifice? <laughs> so we, we know, we know sacrifices, and we, you know, we, we have the, this uh, understanding that in the Old Testament there were a lot of sacrifices. And so let's just take a quick minute, and I want, I want to fly over the Old Testament sacrificial system and the offering system. And that is, we're going to find out just actually as Jason was talking about last week, it really, 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 it, it helps us understand what Paul is asking us to do. And so th there's basically, and I, I say basically, and we'll explain why, five main types of sacrifices um, in the Old Testament. The offering, the sacrifice, it really would be used interchangeably. Um, so first you have a grain offering, okay? The grain offering, this is something that is what it sounds like. It would be with grains, but it can be bread, it could be cereal, it could be baked into cakes, um, it could be roasted. But this was actually to show a, your devotion to God. No killing, no anything involved with it, but... Um, it would be bringing grains, sometimes mixed with, um, with other ingredients, offering to God. Um, you could then have a peace offering. The peace offering could also be grains, but it could also be meat. And the peace offering, sometimes it would be referred to as a wave offering or a thanksgiving offering, or a free will offering. These are different names. But the neat thing about the peace offerings is this was a meal that the giver of the offering, the giver of this sacrifice, would then actually sit and share in this meal before God. So if you brought a peace offering to God out of gratitude and thanksgiving, think of this as I have peace with God and to show that, I'm going to actually share and have a meal with God. It's, it's before his presence. The burnt offering. This is one that was neat. The, the burnt offering was burned up in his, its entirety. Nothing was eaten. The priests didn't eat of this. And it could actually burn. It would burn all night so that in the morning there would be nothing left. Okay? And this burnt offering, it could be, sometimes it was used for sin, 
to, to pay for sin. Other times, it was just to pay for, to show your devotion to the Lord. Um, then you had sin offerings, which these were meant to atone for either the sin or the lack of perfection or purity. You could actually pay a sin offering if you were defiled. Um, and there really, there is a lack of specific instructions. It does not lay out this is exactly what each sin offering would look like. There's some variety of there, but the idea was um, by bringing this sin offering before God, some deficit I have, either impurity or sin that I committed, um, th this would be paying for that. And then you would also have a guilt offering. The guilt offering, it could be a blood sacrifice, but it also could just be financial reparations if you have wronged someone. Um, if you had an unintentional sin, it would be a guilt offering. I walked across the grave, an unmarked grave, and now defiled myself. Um, unintentionally, I, um, I broke one of the laws. I can bring a guilt offering. Um, and, and again, th there's variety. It could be blood. It could be something else. Um, and so what you see is these offerings, these were sacrifices, you know, one and the same, but they were varied. The, each one of these, though, they were also made by the offending party. It was the one who was wrong or the one who wanted to praise and show the devotion to the Lord. They were the ones who would do this. But one of the neat things about it is that each one of these were voluntary. The people were not compelled apart from Scripture to bring any of these. If they were to be obedient to the law and obedient to God, they would be bringing these, these offerings, but there was no offering police. There was no societal or governmental um, comp compelling compelling of people to give these sacrifices. They were all voluntary. The sacrifices did not have to be atoning for sin. And some of these, such as the burnt offering, the peace offerings, the grain offerings, these could be simple acts of overflow of praise and worship to God because of the salvation that he has given and made possible to us. So the offerings, when you look at the Old Testament understanding of offerings, it was more than just, I sinned, let me bring my animal to die in my place. The offering was the overflow and outflow of one who was worshiping God. And when we take this Old Testament understanding of, of sacrifices, of offerings, and we look at the way that it's used here and as well as other places in the New Testament, we understand sacrifices as a whole are the outflow of our worship and our devotion to the Lord because of the salvation he has granted and made possible to us. Romans 12, because of these things that I have shared with you because of the salvation that I have brought you, I exhort you, my brothers, present your bodies as the outflow, the overflow of the praise and the worship to God. This is what Paul is calling them to. It's not just this understanding of let me atone for my sin it's not, let me shed my blood. It would be best accurately understood as the free will expression of worship to God because of the sacrifice that his son made bringing us salvation. If you look in, and I think these are actually on your handout, if you look in um, other places in the New Testament, this is just a sampling of them. We have other teachings on New Testament sacrifices. And 1 Peter 2.5 is one. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Why? Why are you being built up? To offer up 
spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is why we are being built into a spiritual house. The spiritual sacrifices in other places, in, in Hebrews 13, we'll actually look at that in verses 15 and 16, we see that the sacrifices, there are sacrifices of praise to God, or praise to God as a sacrifice, or doing good works and sharing our sacrifices. And so in Hebrews 13 right here, in verse 15, 16, and again, that's on your handout, but it says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that confess his name and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Doing good and sharing. We find in Romans 15 that the salvation of the Gentiles is a sacrifice offered to God. And in Philippians 2, we actually find that Paul is to be a drink offering poured out upon the faith of the Philippians, which is a sacrifice. So both his life as well as the faith of the Philippians are both sacrificial offerings. So what 1 Peter 2.5 and these other passages, what they indicate is that your life, your, your Christian walk, they are all spiritual sacrifices and offerings to God. Your salvation, a sacrifice to God. Your service, your ministry, your faith, your praise. And you are to be a walking, breathing, all-encompassing sacrifice to God. One commentator said, what Paul calls for in verse 1, and by extension, all of verse 12 through verse um, uh, chapter 12 through 15 is no more and no less than the appropriate expected response to God's mercy as we have experienced. And notice what he says in verse 1, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is exactly what Paul has in mind, what we were just talking about. The sacrifice, it is our spiritual service of worship. And when you say spiritual, it, 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 pr pretty simple. Um, there, the, the best way probably to understand this would be the fact that it, it's the inner, it's the heart, it's the mind, not just the outward physical flesh, right? Our spiritual act of worship, it encompasses the inner man. It encompasses our heart, it encompasses our mind, which he's actually about to start speaking about as well. So what is the inner man worship that envelops your whole heart and your mind? It is to present your bodies as a sacrifice to God. To present all of who you are is an act of spiritual and inner worship. Romans 12.1, therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, notice these three adjectives that up to this point we haven't um, really looked at, but we'll look at those now. There's three adjectives that are actually given to describe the sacrifice. And some of your tra translations will actually say, and, and Drew, I think this is the way that you read just now, but a living sacrifice, but th that even, that also is the adjective. The, the way that you could actually read this is the way the LSB reads it and some, some of the other translations, but they would say, offer your bodies as a sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice? Living, holy, and pleasing to God. So first one, a living. Why is it a living sacrifice? Well, we don't need to die to sacrifice. And, and plethora of verses, but we'll just look at Hebrews 10, 12 here. It says, he, Christ having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
We give a sacrifice in worship to God, but our sacrifice is a living one. We have no need to sacrifice our life. Christ has paid that sacrifice for us once for all. Christ has made the one sacrifice for sin. Therefore, by necessity, our sacrifice must be a living one that is lived out through our lives. And the sacrifice is holy. So where would we look? And we've got several E4M brothers in here. Where would we, we look to look at the holiness of God? Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Thank you. Leviticus 19.2. Well done, brothers. Um, they've got a big exam coming up at the end of the year. So encourage them, encourage them. Leviticus 19.2. Let me read that. It says, speak to all the congregations of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. 70 times, and I think it's actually 72 times in Leviticus, God calls his people to be holy for he is holy. And presenting your body as a sacrifice to God fulfills this command in Leviticus. If you think of this, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I can't do it. But Paul tells us that by presenting ourselves as a sacrifice to God, our whole selves fulfills this command from Leviticus that we cannot do. Our sacrifice to God as an outflow of our worship by presenting ourselves is being holy for Yahweh our God is holy. And it's pleasing to God. That, that's, our, that's our hope. That's our desire. In 2 Corinthians 5.9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That's, that's all we want to do, to be pleasing to the Lord and offering yourself as a living sacrifice, as an outflow of worship and praise to God, because of the salvation he has given you, that is pleasing to God. The desire of every believer can be fulfilled by presenting yourself to God as a living sacrifice. True worship is to present your whole body sacrifice to God. Now, how do we do this? Verse 2 shows us that there's two ways in this passage that we present our whole body sacrifice to God. Number, number one, which is number two in your handout, but it's the first way. Um, the first way is by resisting the world. And secondly, by renewing your, the mind. So let's read with me again. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what is the will of God, that which is good and pleasing and perfect." Now, when you look at this passage, the, the, there's two different ways that um, people understand the connection between verse 1 and verse 2, okay? One way, and, and, and I'll tell you, men we love are on both sides of this, and, but I'll show, you, I'll show you what I'm thinking. Um, the first way is that 1 and 2 can be a continuation of a list. If you notice at verse 2, it says, and do not be conformed to the world. We can have verse 1, present your bodies as a sacrifice, and 
Another thing is do not be conformed to this world. And another thing is the renewing of your mind. Renew your mind. Um, and, and, uh, and, and that would make sense, right? If, if, we, if we read and understand the passage that way, that, that would be, we've got three points that P- Paul is calling us to be able to do. But the other way, and this works also grammatically, and this is a lot, a lot of people actually hold to this as well, and I think this might actually be a little bit better, is to show the and is what they would call subordinating, meaning we have the command to present yourselves. It is this command to present yourselves as a sacrifice, and the way that this is done is indented in. You've got do this by do not be conformed, and do this by renew or transform your mind. And um, so they, one, of the, one of the big reasons even why I would, I'm very comfortable landing on that is, one, it, it makes sense as part of the whole body presentation of the sacrifice. The way we present the whole body is by not conforming our lives, but transforming our mind. So, so it does apply very well with that. But also, what is almost universally um, uh, the, the commentary on Romans, everyone almost universally says Douglas Moo is the best, and Moo holds to this. So I'm going to throw my lot in with Douglas Moo. But, and so understanding that, what we're going to say it, as we read this um, we look at this passage in verse 2, I want us to hear that this is how we can be applying and putting into practice the command of verse 1. And that's why I want to kind of emphasize that a little bit. So as we look at these two, understand that I am going to be hearing Paul tell me, how can I present my body as a sacrifice to God? Number one is resist the world. Do not be conformed to the world. And the second way is going to be renew your mind. So resisting the world, in verse 2 it says, and do not be conformed. Now, and this word conformed, and this is actually kind of neat, where it says this conformed refers to an outward forming or shaping of your, your physical expression, right? The way that my, my shape is, um, it would conform to whatever would crush me. My clothes conform to me. My, my, my form is growing. But the, the, our outward shape is to be not conformed to the outward shape of the world. It would be an outward expression and it does not necessarily reflect what is inside. You could think of the Greek idea or concept of the actor who covers his face with a mask to hide his own face so you could see in the drama what expression he wanted you to see his character as having, what type of emotion he would have. It could be used of masquerading or putting on an act if you were pretending to be something that you were not, and specifically if you were given a prescribed um, pattern to follow that you did not accurately reflect that pattern, I'm going to put on that pattern knowing that it's not an accurate reflection of who I am. So this is saying do not be conformed to the world because the world and its pattern is not who you really are. And if you notice on this as well, the way that this word is set up, it says, do not be conformed. This is a command to not be passively impacted. The conformed, being conformed is something that is done to you from the outside. And so you have this very interesting idea where Paul is saying, do not do or allow the outside to act upon you without, uh, apart from your own actions. Do not permit yourself 
to passively be shaped into the shape and the pattern of this world. If it does happen, it's because we allowed it to be done. But we must obey this command to not allow it to be done to us. And when you think of the, wor- of the idea and the concept of the world, I mean, th- this very much makes sense. The world, it's, it's not world planet, but its world could be translated as age or this era, this time, be- um, time place. So the pattern to this age that we are in right now, this age of sin and fallenness, this age is an age that we must not allow it to, to conform us. Um, there's one person who said, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own, mo- own mold. Uh, um, MacArthur said, we must not pattern ourselves or allow ourselves to be patterned after the spirit of this age. We must not become victims of the world. We are to stop allowing ourselves to be fashioned after the present evil age in which we live. So the command is to not allow us to be shaped and impacted by the age in which we currently live. If you look at why we should not do this, it's very simple. That is not who we are. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, starting verse 3, says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of the Son. Why do believers act the way that they do? Well, unbelievers fashion their lives after this age because they've been blinded by the God of this age. You have not been blinded. You should not look like, the, like unbelievers. Do not be conformed to the world because this is not us. And this is how we present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy sacrifices, sacrifices pleasing to God. I'm going to read from Ephesians 2, and this is such a great reminder to us, verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, and among whom we all formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest This is who we were, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We are no longer like that. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, or effeminate, or homosexuals, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. We know that this world is following after the course of Satan, but we are not. Therefore, it makes so much sense that we would not let the world conform us to itself. We must present our bodies as sacrifices to God by not allowing us to look like who we are no longer. Our bodies, and this is where Romans 6, Paul just got talking about in Romans 6, our bodies are to be presented as instruments 
to righteousness. That is who we are. We are no longer slaves to sin. And MacArthur, he also says that it is not uncommon for unbelievers to mask themselves as Christians. Unfortunately, it's, not, it's also not uncommon for Christians to wear the world's masks. They want to enjoy the world's entertainment, the world's fashion, the world's vocabulary, the world's music, many of the world's attitude, even when those things clearly do not conform to the standard of what God wants. That sort of living is wholly unacceptable to God. But sacrifices that are living, holy, and pleasing to God are more or no more worldly. We are not like this world. And so an application I would ask, what does the world what does your life look like? What does the world say that your life should look like? How much does your life look like what the world says it should look like? Over lunch today, talk about this with your family, with your spouse, with your children, with your friends. Identify what areas of your life are conformed to the world. How is the world conforming your children? Discuss this. Identify it and change. Do not let your lives be conformed to the world. Remember, it's being passively done to you. It's being passively done to your children. Do not let your, yourself be conformed to the world. You must act to prevent it from happening. But it's not just take off. But like we find elsewhere in Scripture, we're also told, what do we put on? It's not just don't be conformed to the world, but we're given the second way, Paul shows us, how to actually present our whole body sacrifices to God, resisting the world, and number two, renewing your mind. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. And so, and this is what's neat too, just like the conforming was a command of something that was passively done to us, the same is actually true of being transformed. It's a passive command. So we are commanded to allow ourselves to be transformed. Think of this. We are commanded to allow the transformation to occur. This is the sanctification that occurs in our life. And we actually see this, um, this sanctification spoken about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 18, it says, but we all are being transformed into the same image of glory, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We all are being transformed into the same image. We're being conformed and made into the image of Christ, but we're going from one level of glory to a level of glory that is being made more like Christ. This is the sanctification, the transformation that is happening. And how does this transformation take place? It takes place, in verse 2, by the renewing of your mind. The mind, this is your practical reason. This is your moral consciousness. This is a repro reprogramming of our mind to look more and more like Christ, the image we are being made into. And this should ring a bell to something that we've talked about earlier, but um, in, from Romans 1, because I think it's very intentional. Why is there a 
I'm transforming a renewing of our mind that has to take place? Well, 128 talks about the mind of the unbeliever. And it says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind, an unqualified mind to do those things that were not proper. An unfit mind is not qualified to judge or prove what is pleasing to God. What Paul is saying is, I command you to do what can only be done passively to you, to undo the corrupting effects of sin on your mind. Your mind has been remade. Now renew it and move yourself away from this unfit, corrupted mind that you had as an unbeliever and be transformed to have the mind of Christ. Now, how do we renew our minds? Well, Romans 12 through 15 over the next few weeks is going to show us, so keep coming back. But very specifically, we're actually going to find throughout Scripture that Scripture gives itself as the way to transform our mind. And we, there's so many passages we could look at, but um, we probably know John 17, 17. Who knows this passage? It says, sanctify your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. God's word of God is the tool he has given us to sanctify our minds. Psalm 119.11, your word I have treasured in my heart for what end? That I might not sin against you. Colossians 3.10 says, Putting on, put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This is what we're doing. We are um, becoming even in our minds, like Christ. And, of course, I mean, we know, we, what do we do? We set our minds on the things above, not on the things that are on, the, that are on earth. So in application, what is your current intake of Scripture? This is the means and the method that God has given us to be able to transform our minds. What do you currently do for your intake of Scripture? If you need an idea of something to do, go to Psalm 19. We all know 119 is the really, really long one about the Word, so just take off the first one. And that's also a really good one, and it's shorter. So Psalm 19, memorize it. Sit and memorize it with your kids. Take a month. And memorize Psalm 19, and it talks about the revelation of God. And the second half of it is all about the, oh, the sweetness, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb, are God's word. So memorize it. And the result of saturating your mind with Scripture and renewing your mind is so that you may approve what the will of of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. As you resist the world, as you renew your mind through Scripture, sin's effects on your mind are repaired. Your mind is transformed, and you are able to recognize God's will. You will be able to know His will his will is good, it's pleasing, and perfect. As you saturate your mind with Scripture, Scripture comes out when you're pricked. As you need to know God's will, His Word comes out revealing it to you. Learn the Scriptures. The true worship is to present your whole body sacrifice to God. And this is done by resisting the world and renewing your mind. So over the next six weeks, maybe seven, we will see how Paul further expounds on this. 
But this is what he is doing. He is applying the truths of Scripture and the truths of the gospel into your life. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we pray that you would make us people of your word. We pray that you would conform our minds to the image of your Son. We pray this in your name. Amen.